Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Gone Medieval from History Hit. My name is Dr. Kat Jarman, and today I've got some very special exclusive content for you. Because right now, I am in the far northeast of England. I'm in Northumberland, warming up after a particularly freezing day digging holes in the field. And I'm here because I'm part of a team that has started investigating a brand new Viking site that has just been identified. And in today's podcast, I'm very excited to be able to share for the very first time and exclusively for Gone Medieval, the lowdown on this brand new discovery. And with me now, I have the archaeologist in charge of the project, my brilliant colleague, Dr. Jane Kershaw. Jane is an assistant professor at the University of Oxford, so thanks so much for agreeing to share this with us, Jane. Thanks for having me. Now, Jane specialises in the Viking Age, and especially in Viking Age metalwork. And as we'll hear in a moment, metal artefacts were actually key to finding the site in the first place. And we're going to go back to that very specific site and this new discovery in a moment, but we just need to start out with some of the background information about the site. So I thought we could start with the particular group of Vikings that we're talking about here, namely the so-called Great Army or Great Heathen Army. And in case our listeners aren't really that familiar with the Great Army, Jane, can you just tell us briefly about who these people were. Yeah, absolutely. So they are first recorded as arriving in England in 865. So this is after a period of 70 years or so of Viking raiding. But in this year, a great army arrives. They're a motley collection of kind of career warriors, mostly from Scandinavia, maybe some people coming from the continent possibly from Ireland as well, and they travel round England, subduing the various Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. They take East Anglia, they go and they capture York, they're capturing parts of Mercia as well. And this activity is taking place in the late 860s and 70s, and we have historical documents that tell us where they overwinter. And it's these winter campsites that archaeologists have been investigating and that we're learning a lot more about. I should say at this point that the work that I've been doing in the last decade or so is looking at some of these camps. So I've got a special interest. And one of those camps is the site called Repton in Derbyshire. And that's probably the camp that we know the most about because we have the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle record of it and then the archaeologists backed it up. Another site for 872 is a site called Torxey in Lincolnshire. And they've been really, really important because they match the historical record with the archaeology. But crucially, this far north, we don't really have 
any evidence of any of those camps, do we? No, the archaeological evidence has been non-existent for Vikings this far north. We are well north of the time. But we pick up the story in Repton, after the Vikings have been there in 873, and where do they go next? The historical sources say that actually the Great Army splits at this point. Most of what the sources call the host, which is the army, go south and settle in um, the south of England, especially East Anglia. But a part of the army goes north and it heads to the River Tyne. Yes, and I should say at this moment as well, if you want to find out more about the Great Army, you can also check out more about their activities in the south of England, culminating in the legendary Battle of Eddington. Check out the new documentary on that topic on History Hit, where Dan Snow and I went on a road trip across the country to search for evidence of the Great Army. Let's go back to the north again. So the historical records do mention then that the Great Army, or at least part of the Great Army, goes north and goes actually into Northumbria. What exactly do they say? And, and who? And we've got some names, haven't we? Yeah, we do. And it's interesting because a lot of different written sources all say the same thing, which is that a Viking leader called Halfdan, so one of the leaders of the Great Army, takes part of the troops there and they all agree, all the sources agree, that he enters Northumbria on the Tyne. So we're confident that along the Tyne somewhere is a Viking army base. But so far, nobody's really worked out where that was. There is no evidence whatsoever. There have been suggestions based on likely positions, like Tynemouth itself is a likely location because there were some Anglo-Saxon monasteries there, and maybe that was a source of wealth for the Vikings. There was a natural harbour in that area, so it's been suggested that maybe they didn't sail that far down the Tyne and stayed near the coast, but really we have no physical evidence. So we know Halfdan goes north, we know he comes here, but then what does he do? I mean, what else happens? And could you possibly say a little bit more about the context of this kingdom of Northumbria? You know, what else was here? What could he have wanted? He's already taken York. So the Viking army have taken York in the 860s. York is the centre of the Northumbrian Anglo-Saxon kingdom at that stage. There are other centres that become very important. So Bamba, further north on the coast, and of course Lindisfarne, which the Vikings have earlier raided. And these monasteries I just mentioned around the mouth of the Tyne, a cluster of Anglo-Saxon monasteries also raided much earlier on around 800 by the Vikings. So this is an area that Vikings have previously attacked and extracted wealth out of. But when we join them again in the 870s, they're still interested in raiding, but we're in a different phase of Viking activity where raiding is soon turning to settlement. Let's bring it back to the new discovery and the reason why we're up here and why we were shivering in a very rainy, <laughs> wet April field today. How did this new discovery come about? What was it that made you narrow in on this particular location? Because the, the historical sources just mentioned the time, but we're much further north than that. So we've travelled up the Northumbrian coast or in the beautiful Coquit Valley and the site first came to light from the metal detector finds. 
and these metal detectorists have been working the site for around 15 years. They've been carefully recording where they discovered their finds, reporting it to the National Portable Antiquities Scheme, and that has allowed us to identify this site as really significant in its regional context, and that's what first drew us here. And there was a lovely assemblage of Viking Age material, not standout stuff, not kind of gold and silver that attracts a lot of attention, but actually more money mundane pieces that nonetheless we tie now to Viking camps and the great army. So we have a selection of lead gaming pieces, for instance. So pieces that would have been used as markers on boards that members of the great army are, are playing during their copious downtime in between raiding activities, whiling away their time in the same muddy field we were in today. There are lots of Anglo-Saxon dress accessories. Although they're Anglo-Saxon, they turn up at Viking camps. We're not really sure how they're being used, but these are fittings for belts and pins and things like that. And also the local coinage, which isn't actually a silver coinage, but which is copper alloy. So it's a very kind of low denominational coinage but it's a recurring feature at Viking campsites and we have it here. Yeah so that's the key isn't it this is essentially now we recognize as a kind of signature for these great army camps and they don't happen before we start hearing about the great army sites and they don't really happen afterwards either so you know if you go into the 900s you don't get that same signature you don't get the gaming pieces they seem extremely specific and we know because we have them at somewhere like Repton where we've got the historically documented evidence you can use that evidence and you can sort of take that elsewhere. So that all fitted really well, didn't it? It did. And the coinage is especially helpful because then we can say, it's not an exact date that it offers, but we can say this was coinage produced in the 850s, 860s. It points us towards a certain period of use. So it's not purely guesswork. You know, we have some dating evidence there. So we think this happens after 873. Mm -hmm. And you think it's quite soon after in the next year or two, probably? I do, because the historical sources are clear that it's 875 that the Viking army, part of the army, heads to the Tyne. And there, the sources say, Halfdan raided among the Picts and the Strathclyde Britons. These are populations, so Scotland and northwest England and southern Scotland towards the west coast. These are populations further north than where we are now. So it makes sense that the Viking Great Army is on the Tyne. They're heading up further north to raid in these northern zones. And on the way, they pass the Coquit. So the Coquit is a river that goes from the North Sea and a bit further inland. And then the site is in that valley. So it's accessible from the coast. Exactly. It's perhaps best known today for Walkworth Castle, which is a prominent local feature. But also on the coast itself, you have Coquit Islands, a very small island today. It's a bird reserve but a very convenient navigational waypoint. So if you were sailing up the coast, you come to this island, you can turn in at modern day Amble, where we're sitting now, and you can row up the river. It fits into that pattern. We've got the objects that sort of scream Viking Great Army mm -hmm. at us, and it makes sense as a location. We know that some of them went up here. But let's talk a little bit more in, in sort of like general terms about the site, because that's another thing that we've been trying to understand in recent years. These campsites, these locations that were used by the Vikings, we know that they spend the winter there. 
So some of it is literally somewhere you can shelter and you can settle. They need to be defendable, essentially. You need to be able to, to make sure you keep people safe. It used to be thought that these were fortifications because sometimes in the records they talk about fortifications. We don't have any evidence or any sign of fortifications here, do we? And instead, they are taking advantage of something else. The site is a naturally defensive site. It's an area of high ground with quite steep falls on at least three sides, easy access to the river which is great for looking out and keeping an eye on potential enemies and it also gives you access if you need to get out to the coast to, to get away. So we're not necessarily looking for built structures, the supports or, or ditches necessarily, but we're more looking for a prominent position in the landscape that takes advantage of the natural features. Because these sites are temporary sites. These are very short-lived, probably a year or so. Maybe they come back after a little while, but they, these are not permanent settlements. So we need to understand these as not sites that people are going to invest a great deal in terms of more permanent structures. So really, when we continue with our excavations, we're not really likely to find, we're not going to find buildings. We're not mm -hmm. going to find anything major like that. I mean, what do you think we're going to find when we continue? I hope very much we'll find more finds, like more small finds, small pieces of metalwork, which are so informative about this site. We might find some burials. One of the really interesting things about this site is that it is not just occupied in the Viking Age. There is evidence for earlier Anglo-Saxon activity, high status Anglo-Saxon activity, whether this is something like a market site or more likely a cemetery is yet to be seen, but there's clearly early Anglo-Saxon activity. And going back even earlier, there's Roman activity, which is really interesting this far north. Yeah, we're well north of Hadrian's Wall. There's late Roman activity, which you don't get a lot of in Northumberland. And it might be connected to the building of the Antonine Wall, even further north than where we are now. So this has a longer history, I guess, this site. It's a site that the Vikings didn't necessarily have to identify for themselves as somewhere prominent. They would have been attracted to an already high status site. Have you heard of the teenage werewolf prosecuted in 1603? Did you know that the 17th century British government relied heavily on female spies? And do you want to know about chin chucking and thigh sex? Of course you do. I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and my new podcast, Not Just the Tudors, is a deep dive into what I like to think of as the long 16th century. We'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Velezquez to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Hey folks, since you're a fan of history, you clearly 
want to understand how we've ended up with the world that we have. Well, I'd like to tell you about my show. It's called Dan Snow's History Hit. And on that show, you get a daily dose of history and the stories that really explain just about everything that's ever happened. If you want to know the origin stories of the cities we inhabit, what's in our kitchen cupboards, why we've always been drawn to dictators, the deep history that explains what's going on, for example, in the Middle East, well, we've got you covered. And if you'd rather be regaled with dramatic tales of powerful empires, we do that too. Get a little bit smarter every day with Dan Snow's History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. So there could possibly even have been some earlier features. And actually, we were walking around today, we were looking at some of our maps, drone images and LIDAR images and so on, and looking for some sites that, you know, perhaps somebody else, perhaps the Romans had built something there before. We're a bit unsure at the moment, so we've got to go back and investigate, but it's, it's quite possible that that could have been there. Indeed, and if we think about Torxi, for instance, they do actually have a Roman villa in the middle of that site unclear about what would have been visible or or in use at that stage but it was a site that was occupied in the roman period as well as then being occupied later by the viking great army and i suspect it's highly likely that we have roman activity and going back even earlier iron age activity it's a classic iron age fort source of site and actually other sites like thetford as well for example where we again there's another winter camp we've not yet identified but that also has a very prominent Iron Age hill fort. So there are fortifications, again, it's located by a river. So it fits that pattern extremely well, which is quite exciting. Yeah, increasingly as we add more and more of these sites to our repertoire, we can see recurring features. But if you go to this whole valley today, it's pretty quiet. There's not a lot. There's beautiful villages, there's lovely bridges. We found a lovely pub uh, yesterday where we could sit outside and have, uh, you know, maybe have a drink. But there's, there's not really anything else there. So obviously we talked about the river, the fact that they're going north. But, you know, was there anything else here for them? Was this a destination itself apart from that? Or was it more of a sort of strategic choice to come up to a place like this? It is strategic and a really important feature of this site is that it is not enemy territory. These lands had been owned by the Anglo-Saxon monastery, the the community of Lindisfarne, but they were taken over by an Anglo-Saxon king who was then killed by the Vikings in York. And when he died, his lands would have passed over to the Viking rulers in principle, whether in reality there were client kings involved, you know, ruling day to day is open to question. But it means that the Vikings who rode into the River Coquit were in charge of this area. So it was in a way a safe haven and it could have been a really convenient and safe base from which to plan attacks further north and northwest. And that's something that we can really visualise, I think, when you go out there in the landscape. And things like how you travel. So obviously we've talked about the river and the fact that, as, as you will know, I'm slightly obsessed with how the Vikings used rivers in different parts of the world. And in other parts of Europe, like in Eastern Europe, the rivers are absolutely key to what the Vikings are doing. And here too, we can imagine that if they are going raiding inland, We know that this is a force that goes in part on land, but also by boat. So they have boats, they have ships that are going to be very valuable. And then we were discussing earlier on today, what do you do with those ships? If you're raiding in land, where are you going to keep them? And could that be the sort of function of a site like this as well? 
Definitely, I think that's a critical part. You need somewhere to keep your ships safe, somewhere where you can repair them, mend the sail if necessary, and when the, where the crew can rest, but also where you have them at the ready. So if you need them and you need to get away quickly, you can do that. So a safe place where you can easily manoeuvre a fleet is vital. But what's interesting about this side is that not only do you have the access to the rivers and then the coast, but you also have a Roman road infrastructure that can take you inland. So you can go on a road that's known as the Devil's Causeway. You can go into northeast Northumbria as far as Berwick-upon-Tweed, but it can also take you to the Lower Tyne Valley where it connects to other Roman roads to take you further inland and further west. So you have both overland routes and riverine routes. So it's just perfect strategic. So if you're it's somebody ideal. like Halfdan, who's got ambitions to do, to do so, so what actually, let's, let's st- stop on that. What is he trying to do, do you think? It's a good question. I mean, the sources say that Halfdan is intent on pillaging and raiding this area on attacking the churches and monasteries. Now we sort of have to take that with a pinch of salt because these are sources that want to claim they are the victims of Viking raids. But we do get the sense from the sources that Halfdan is quite a character. And this is in the context of a cast of really big characters. Any (laughs) Viking leader is gonna be quite a character at this stage, but Halfdan seems quite special. He's someone that leads troops up into Scotland. We know that he fights in Scotland at Dollar and Athol for up to a year, quite a long time. He then comes back, he settles in Yorkshire with his army, but the settled life is not for him. He's keen to keep on raiding to try to continue this campaign of warfare and he tries to muster his men to do this they don't want any part of it and in the end he leaves the Tyne again with just three ships the sources say and he goes to Ireland where he's involved in the killing of his nephew and shortly after that he himself is killed so he doesn't survive that much longer but he's someone who is a warrior up until the end and doesn't seem to want to settle down and plough the land like the rest of his followers. I can we just touch on that one source that says something about him leaving the country because that's quite an interesting one because it actually gives a bit of a reason for what happened with him and why people didn't want anything to do with Haftan anymore. Indeed. So this is an early 12th century source. It's a little bit after our period. So again, grain of salt required. But it says that Haftan was attacked by mental insanity and by the severest bodily odour. And that was why none of his followers wanted to go with him. So he's leaving the time stinking, (laughs) not able to gain any more loyalty or support from the people that have followed him thus far. And so he heads off to Ireland in disgrace and smelling really bad. Poor Halfdan. Poor Halfdan. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so moving on. (laughs) Moving just back to the new site and the new discovery. What's the significance of finding a site in Northumbria, do you think? I mean, do we need to? Is it important? And what can that really tell us? It is important. This is not an area of the country that has a lot of archaeological material for the early medieval period so for the Anglo-Saxon and the Viking Age and really Viking history has no place here so far we have these historical references but actually they've not been investigated they've kind of been overlooked in favour
favour of places in the country where we do have much richer archaeological evidence like Yorkshire and East Anglia. So I feel like this site is filling a gap in our knowledge and actually drawing attention to the very far reach of the Viking Great Army. They're travelling up and down the country, literally we're going to the far, far north of England here. And they're going from England into Scotland, so this is a link between what's happening in England, what's happening in Scotland, and that is also connected to what's happening in Ireland. So they're not separate movements, they're all interrelated, the same players are involved in all three areas. This really could be a very important puzzle piece in that big picture. Which is exciting and it's brilliant because we don't get new Viking sites very often. There really are quite a few and far between. And if it wasn't for the careful reporting of these finds over the years, you know, I think we have a contrast here with somewhere like Torxie that has an awful lot of finds recorded now, many, many man hours of metal detecting on the site. It's different here. It's not got the same hundreds or thousands of artifacts, but it's been a slow and steady build. And as a result, we've been able to identify a fascinating site. And it's, as you said right at the beginning, these aren't the really amazing big hordes. They're not gold and silver. They are really kind of boring to a lot of people, everyday small objects. But the fact that these tell that bigger story is essentially what's so important about them. So hopefully we'll get more of those finds, more recorded, and then we can really fill in the picture. Go and check your scrap boxes because it might be that you have material that you don't think is interesting but we find fascinating. So that's really brilliant. So we've just done a bit of digging, we've just got started here. I think we're really understanding the landscape, was beginning to understand the landscape. Some of that is the movement of the river in the past because at the moment the way the river is flowing isn't necessarily the same as a thousand years ago. So what we need to do is try to work out what that river used to do and how that affects our site. I have to be completely honest, in the last two days, we found a few things, but no amazing discoveries just yet. And you and I dug a trench, a little test bit that had absolutely nothing. Nothing at all. In it, unfortunately, <laughs> but we're not going to give up. So what's next for this site then? So we've been just test pitting at the moment. So putting in very small trenches just to assess how deep is the archaeology? Are there other features? We do have features, just nothing that is very tangible at the moment. So we're coming back to the site. We're gonna do a proper two week dig in September. And we really need to understand what's happening with the river. So I think some coring is needed, some kind of identifying the different phases of the landscape, how the land that has crops in it today would have been used in the past. So that's gonna tell us then, hopefully much more about who was here, how long they were here for, what sort of uh, resources they had access to, how big the site was, because actually the area we're talking about, it's quite big, isn't it? It's really substantial. I think our, our latest estimate was 42 or 43 hectares, which is comparable to the other sites that have been identified, like Torxie and Aldwalk in Yorkshire as well. So it's definitely in the same league as that, which is interesting when we think about the sources and only part of the Viking army going north and the rest going south. But here the site is just as big as the campsites that have hosted the entire Viking army. So we could be talking about a pretty substantial, a pretty important site potentially. Yeah, where nobody knew to expect it. And that's what's so exciting. So literally a few years ago, absolutely no clue. And then the objects just bring this to life entirely. 
that's really really exciting obviously i'm excited because i'm involved in the project myself <laughs> but this is definitely one to look out for so we will keep you updated we will as i said be digging more and jane's going to be leading research going forward so when there is some news we'll make sure we bring it to you here and if you do want to find out more about the great army as well listen to some of the other podcasts on dan's nose history hit and check out the new documentary about the great army on our road trip through the country looking for some of these sites as well hope you enjoy this episode this was dr jane kershaw talking about the brand new viking site in northumberland Thank you so much for joining me, Jane. Thank you, it's been great. And don't forget to subscribe to Gone Medieval and you can find it anywhere where you find your podcast. Click that subscribe button pretty please and tell all your friends and family to do the same. And we will be back next week with more. I'm Dr Kat Jarman and I will see you again soon. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.